Hey guys, I want to talk to you this morning about two things. Uh, yesterday we looked at Luke 24, how Jesus rose from the dead. And there have been some that have said that the four Gospels give contradictory accounts of the resurrection. Uh, I addressed some of that in the sermon yesterday, uh, but I want to address two more things that are often referred to as, quote, contradictions, which are, in fact, not contradictions, as we'll see. Uh, and those being the angels and the women. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read from this book, The Final Days of Jesus. Fantastic book that just walks through the last week of Jesus and tells you what happens every day. And they kind of synergize all of the four Gospels. And uh, they do a good job. They do better than I could do in explaining it to you. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm just going to read this to address, again, those notions the accusations of, quote, contradictions in relation to the angels and the women at the tomb. So I'm going to read this, and then the second thing we'll talk about is I want to give you just a parable of two people and what it would look like to live in the power of the resurrection. Um, so let's do this first one. Kostenberger and Taylor write, The resurrection accounts have often been excoriated by critics of Christianity as being contradictory. How many women went to the tomb? How many angels were there? To whom did Jesus appear and when? However, when the gospel narratives are, while the gospel narratives are different, they are not contradictory. They reflect exactly what we would expect from eyewitness accounts of such an unexpected and supernatural event. Their very differences confirm the truthfulness of the resurrection. If the disciples had stolen the body and created a conspiracy to deceive the masses, they surely would have created more uniform accounts. And they most certainly would not have posited women as the first eyewitnesses. In the first century Palestine, the testimony of women was easily dismissed and carried little weight. The differences between the gospel accounts attest to multiple independent witnesses, each of whom communicated particular details from their individual perspectives. The differences will be discussed below, but it is important to stress at the outset that none of the differences represent an irreconcilable contradiction. And I'm going to slide on down to the section called the empty tomb. So what they're saying so far is, is they're not contradictions, but they in fact actually work together. They're different eyewitness accounts that actually corroborate, do not contradict. So here we go, the empty tomb. Matthew records that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb near dawn on Sunday perhaps between 6 and 6.15 a.m. They encounter an angel who commands them not to fear, informs them Jesus is not in the tomb, invites them to look around the tomb for his body, and commands them to go tell his disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead and will meet them in Galilee. Mark records that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome buy spices after the Sabbath, that is Saturday night and go early on Sunday morning to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body in keeping with Jewish burial customs, which had not been properly carried out due to the haste of the burial on Friday afternoon. On the way, they discuss how they will get past the large stone, but upon arriving at the tomb, they find the stone rolled away. When they enter the tomb, they see a young man sitting on the right side and are alarmed, but the man instructs them not to be concerned. Jesus has risen and is not there, and they are to go tell his disciples, and Peter in particular, that he will meet them in Galilee. Again, that's Mark's gospel. Luke 
records that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and at least two other unnamed women go to the tomb at early dawn on Sunday with the spices they had prepared. When they arrive, they discover that the stone has been rolled away and that Jesus' body is missing. Two men in dazzling apparel appear and speak to the frightened women. They ask the women why they are looking for the living among the dead, inform them that Jesus has risen, and remind them of Jesus' prior prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection. The angel's announcement jogs the women's memories and they remember Jesus' words. That should be familiar to us. That's what we looked at yesterday. And now he's going to move to John. John records that Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it is still dark Sunday morning, sees the tomb rolled away and flees the scene to report that she has what she has seen to the disciples. She later returns to the tomb following Peter and John and encounters Jesus. In her report to the disciples in John 20, verse 2, she says, We, note the plural, we do not know where they have laid him, implying the presence of other women. Authors commonly refer only to the most prominent member of a group, Mary Magdalene in this case, and do not note the presence of other minor characters. Mary Magdalene, being mentioned first in the other gospel accounts, was the best known of the early female witnesses. Perhaps she was still alive and active in some part of the early church when the Gospels first began to circulate. There is not enough information to decide precisely how John's account fits with those in the other Gospels. Several scenarios are possible. Most probably the women all went together and upon seeing the stone rolled away, Mary Magdalene immediately fled to tell the disciples while the other women went into the tomb and were greeted by the angels. The ignorance of Mary's report that Jesus' body had been moved, chapter 20, verse 2, and her grief and tears upon returning to the tomb, chapter 20, verse 11, indicate that she had not heard the angel's reassuring report that Jesus had risen. Alternatively, Mary Mary Magdalene may have initially gone to the garden by herself, found the tomb empty, and fled to tell the disciples, while the other women arrived shortly thereafter. In this case, the inclusion of Mary in the other gospel accounts may be due to an abbreviated conflation of the trips of the various women to the tomb. Another possibility is that if Mary Magdalene initially went to the tomb alone, her second trip to the tomb recorded in John could correspond to the visit of the women to the tomb recorded in the other three gospels. The slight differences between the words of the angel at the tomb reflect the selectivity of each individual gospel author. None of the authors claims to record every word that was spoken, and the words are complementary, not contradictory. Complementary, not contradictory. Only a hardened skeptic, they say, would insist that the angel could not have said everything recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The difference in the number of angels, one or two, Inside the tomb is easily explained by the fact that one angel was more prominent and did all the talking, while the other angel remained silent. Matthew and Mark do not say only one angel was present, and there was no need to be more specific, because the focus of the narrative is on what the angel had to say and not how many were there. No author claims to communicate every possible detail. Basically, if I could sum all that up, I think it's found in that sentence that they wrote, uh, that these are complementary accounts, not contradictory accounts. And so you may have heard that there's all kinds of contradictions 
However, when we actually slow down and consider the fact that these are complementary eyewitness accounts, we can see that there are easily, uh, easily uh, complementary accounts that make sense of what happens at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and again, I would hasten to add those 500 witnesses that we read about in Corinthians, wherein Jesus appears to hundreds. And so it is evident that these authors are not attempting to hide from the truth, but instead they are trying to bring it to bear upon all of us that we might uh, repent and believe on the crucified and resurrected Christ, that we might enjoy the power of the resurrection. And I want to talk to us about that now. The second thing I want to talk to you about is living in the power of the resurrection. We as Christians have rightly emphasized the cross, as I said yesterday. However, it's strange that many of us do not think much about the resurrection. And yet when we read the New Testament, that seems to be a dominant theme of their hope. In fact, I would argue that if a New Testament church were to come into our gatherings and listen to our preaching and teaching and singing and prayers for a month, I think that would be the biggest thing they would be the most surprised at. Namely, that the mentioning, the power, the application uh, of the resurrection just seems to be faintly emphasized or sang about or taught. Um, and so the reason for that, as we saw, is because if Christ has risen from the dead, he's overcome sin and death. Therefore, they, those two, the greatest enemies in all of the world, have been defeated. And therefore, for those of us that trust in Christ, we are united to his death, he died for our sin, and to his life, the resurrection of sin. Therefore, we have eternal life. Not just spiritually, but even physically. We have hope of a world that will eventually come uh, in the way that we want it to. In other words, we will have a better world, a resurrected world, a good world, full of justice and love and mercy. And so uh, I want to give a little parable, a little example of what it would look like to not live in the power of the resurrection and what it would like look like to live in the power of the resurrection. And I'm going to use kind of two polar opposites so as to illustrate how the world may look at something and deem it powerful, but it in fact is weak. And I also want to give the more positive example. While the world might look at it and think it weak and insignificant, it is in fact living in the power of the resurrection. So meet Ricky and Rhonda. Here's Rhonda. Here's Ricky. Let's start off with Ricky. Ricky is a powerful corporate executive. See his desk there. He's got so much power. He's over to... He's able to oversee all of these different groups of people in all of these different places. Uh, Ricky is a very powerful man. Ricky has his name in the newspapers. Ricky makes a lot of money. So much money that he buys really nice cars and he goes on a lot of vacations. He travels. He sees the world. So that's Ricky. But here's the thing about Ricky. Ricky doesn't know the Lord. Ricky doesn't follow Jesus. And maybe even if Ricky might understand himself to be in Christ, uh, he's not, but he might think he is. He might even have good thoughts about the cross. But the power of the resurrection is not his meditation. And so what happens to Ricky is the world looks at Ricky, and Ricky looks at Ricky, and he sees power. He sees influence. He sees victory. He's winning in the eyes of the world. However, the reality is... Ricky is living in deception. And the reason why he's living in deception is, is not to say that what he's doing is insignificant, but what it does mean to indicate is that as we 
uh, look and evaluate the eschaton, the eternal state of things. Ricky is living in deception because all of this stuff eventually will die. It'll stop. The power that he has over all these different people, the newspapers will know eventually he's going to die and all of his mentionings uh, about his accomplishments, eventually those things, insofar as they are apart from Christ, they will die. His money will go away. His car will go away. His vacations will stop. And they will not redound on to eternity. And so while Ricky thinks that he's winning, that he's living in victory, the reality is he's not. Well, the world looks at Ricky and they see this is winning. This is success. This is power. He's got all of this power. The reality is, is the world and Ricky himself sees that he's living in, we see in Christ, he's living in deception because all of this stuff has an end date. Now, compare that with Rhonda. Here's Rhonda. Rhonda is working. You see her her McDonald's shirt there? Rhonda's working at McDonald's. In the eyes of the world, not very powerful, not very strong, not very influential. She's working at McDonald's. And in the evening, she's studying for her GED. She didn't finish up at school and she sees the need to go and do that. She's working in the evenings on her GED. She has a young daughter. And she takes walks with her, works hard for her. She's doing all these other things to try to keep her afloat, keep her in school and educate her. And in particular, she's trying to tell her, she's trying, Rhonda's trying to tell her daughter about Jesus. She gathers with the church, a small church, let's say, 50, 60 people. And they come together in some small town and worship the risen Savior. Rhonda is thinking about the resurrection. She has repented and given her life to Christ. She loves the gospel. She sings the gospel. She lives in the power of the resurrection. And as she disciples her daughter, she tells her about the eternal state that's coming. She's pursuing uh, an education such that she can maybe get a better job so as to provide for her daughter and maybe herself or maybe even others better. Uh, And she works hard at her job. She works hard at her job. In the eyes of the world... Rhonda doesn't seem to have much influence, doesn't seem to have much power. But in reality, Rhonda has much more power than Ricky. And the reason for that is because what Rhonda does redounds on to eternity. Whereas Ricky's stops. Rhonda lives in the truth. Ricky lives in deception. Rhonda is living in the power of the resurrection. Rhonda knows that her work, that her studying, that her discipleship for her and her worship, she knows that all of these things will move on into the eschaton. They will never have an end date. And it will only get better as she goes on to uh, have a job that she enjoys and doesn't have to work as hard and sweat as Genesis 3 talks about in her work. Uh, and so that is the difference, guys, between living in the power of the resurrection and living in the power of, say, success in the world. One lives by deception, the other lives by the truth. And the difference is, the key difference is, is this understanding that whatever it is we do, as it accords to the truth, it will go on into eternity. As opposed to the things that are lies, that are deceptive, that are temporal. Those things will stop. They have an end date. 
And so that's why Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, after taking the entire chapter to talk about the importance of the resurrection, he says at one point early in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31, I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, and then he goes on to say, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins bad morals. He's reflecting on the life of Ricky. And he's helping the church in Corinth go, listen, if I do all of this work for the gospel and there is no resurrection, well then, this is pointless. This is absolutely pointless. Uh, And in particular, Paul's life is pointless insofar as he's trying to suffer for Jesus to get the gospel out. That's pointless too. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Paul goes, no, that's not the case at all. The reality is, he goes on to say, Christ has risen from the dead, therefore we do have hope. And because we have hope, we can then conclude, as he does in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, he's reflecting on the resurrection. And then listen to his application. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, this is what you have to know, knowing that in the Lord, your labor, Rhonda, is not in vain. And the reason why it's not in vain is because in the eschaton, in the resurrection of all things, This work, insofar as it accords to the truth, it moves on into forever. As opposed to Ricky's stuff that lives in deception. Eat, drink, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It all stops. That, beloved, is the power of the resurrection. That's living in the power of the resurrection. Whatever it is you're doing, you're a mom, you're a dad, you're single, working hard at your job, you're studying, you're a student, you're evangelizing, you're discipling, you're trying to read and study the Bible, you're, you're singing, you're leading in music, whatever it is you're doing. If you understand that Christ has risen from the grave, he is the first fruits, you too will rise from the grave. Uh, you too can join with the saints on a resurrected earth, worshiping a resurrected Savior in a resurrected body. When you're thinking about such things, You can join with Paul in saying, no matter what it is I do, in the eyes of the world, I may fail, uh, I may disappoint myself, I can be steadfast, I can be immovable, I can always be abounding in the Lord, because I know, like Rhonda, my work, insofar it accords to the truth, it will move on into eternity. Guys, that is reason to spend our lives in a magnificent and risky and powerful way. No matter what the Rickies of the world might say to us, We know that we, in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, our work won't be in vain and we will press on. Our work will move on into eternity. And so, beloved, live in the power of the resurrection. Christ has risen from the grave. He has ascended. He's returning. You too will resurrect from the grave. And all of that work that you do in the Lord, in the truth, it will move on. Be you a McDonald's uh, worker uh, or... Be you a president of the United States. Either way, it will redound into eternity. Let that fuel you to spend your life.
for the glory of Christ and the good of others. 